Good afternoon, my name is Kyle, and I'm one of the pastors here, and we have been in a series on 1st and 2nd Samuel. A couple weeks ago, when we looked at the life of Saul, we noted that there is a particular order in which kings are established. First, the king is anointed or designated, but then after that, the king has to prove himself. He has to be tested. He has to demonstrate that he is indeed a king. And then after that is done, the king is finally coordinated, crowned king. Well, last week we saw Joshua preached on 1 Samuel 16, and we saw that David was anointed. He was designated king. But this week we see that he has to demonstrate it. He's got to be tested. It's a very famous story, maybe the most famous story in all of the scripture, the story of David and Goliath. But I wonder, have you ever considered it in the context of 1 and 2 Samuel or in the context of the Bible as a whole? Let's pray as we do that now. God, we ask that you would show us Jesus because that's who we need to see. As he opened up the scriptures to the disciples on the road to Emmaus and showed how it all pointed to him. Would you show us as we open up your truth, how it all points to you and not only points to you, but how you make yourself present in and through it. It's in the name of our great King Jesus Christ that we do ask these things. Amen. Well, when we open 1 Samuel 17, Israel is deathly afraid. The Philistine armies have made it to the heart of Israelite territory, to the valley of Elah. On one side of the valley stands a mountain, and there the Philistine armies are encamped. On the other side of the valley stands another mountain, and there Saul and the Israelite armies are encamped. And every day... Every day, morning and evening, a Goliath of a man, that was his name, would walk out into the valley of Elah and he would throw down the gauntlet saying, why have you come out to draw for battle? Am I not a Philistine and you are not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. It was a battle of champions. Like a penalty shot at when time has already expired. Two players from each team would determine the destinies of their respective teams. Give me a man. Choose a man for yourself. But see, Israel, they had chosen a man, right? His name was Saul. And where was he? He was sitting up in the camp, cowering in fear. And that's why each and every day, when Goliath laid down the gauntlet, the Israelites, verse 11, tells us, cowered in fear as well. I wonder if you can relate to Israel. Do you know that fear? 
Do you know what it's like to face something that terrifies you, paralyzes you, in fact? You know, we live in a culture where we see fear all around us. No fear, as I have heard it said, goes unnoticed or unnoted. And there are so many things to be afraid of. We are told of all the things that we have to be afraid of, and some of those are legitimate and some of those aren't. But the reality is, is that most of us know this kind of fear. We know what it's like to lay awake at night and worry that there is something in front of us, an obstacle that we cannot handle. We worry about our children's safety. We worry about our children's future. We worry about our own future and our job prospects. We worry about our retirement. We worry about being found out or left alone. Or maybe we worry, like Israel, that our opponents or ideological enemies are going to get the upper hand. And we fear persecution, discrimination, do you know what it's like to fear like Israel feared? But it's worth asking the question, why is it exactly that Israel is afraid? I mean, what is it that they feared? Because whether your fears are legitimate or ir illegitimate, the reality is, is that if you follow those fears, they can be very revealing about where we place our confidence. You know, unlike modern-day preachers, Hebrew narrators are very economical with their words. Did you know that? And so, when we turn to verses 4 through 7, and we see this massive amount of words being spent on describing Goliath's, uh, Goliath and his armor, it should strike us. Robert Alter, the great Hebrew scholar, says that what's going on here is that a narrator is trying to draw our attention to Goliath to show that in Goliath what we see is an embodiment of human power and potential. You see, Goliath was the biggest. He was the strongest. And he was actually the most technologically advanced. He had all of that on his side. You see, he had it covered from head to toe. And the best military technology that the Bronze Age had to offer. And that is why Israel was so afraid. Because they looked around and they didn't have it. See, where was Israel's confidence? It was in the power and potential that Goliath had. But they didn't have it. And maybe you can relate. Maybe you are facing an obstacle today. Some of you I know are where you look at your resources and you say, I don't have a chance. Maybe, maybe you're facing a court date and you're saying, I don't have a chance. Maybe you're looking at your GPA and your scholarship and you're trying to do the math and you're saying, I don't have a chance. Maybe you're looking at a failed marriage or a failing marriage and you're saying, I don't have the resources here and I don't have a chance. Maybe it's a business venture that you're looking at and it's failing and you're saying, I don't have a chance. You look at your resources and you think, I don't have a chance. Mounting debt, 
a difficult job market. And you wonder, can I even go on? Maybe you sit here this morning paralyzed in fear. Maybe you can relate to Israel. But some of us said that we can't relate to Israel. But can you relate to Goliath? Now, most of us, when we've heard the story of David and Goliath, don't really see ourselves in Goliath's shoes, do we? But the reality is, is I think that we can relate to Goliath more than we think we can. I mean, Goliath, where's his confidence? It's in himself. And the common wisdom of the day is we are told in a thousand different books, in a thousand different movies, in a thousand different ways to be like Goliath. That you are enough. That, that if you just look inside, you will see that you can do this. You got this, is the message that we hear. If you don't believe me, there's this little movie called Frozen. Go watch it. You got this, is the message that we hear in so many ways. So maybe we can relate to Goliath. Maybe we think, you know, I do have this. And I can do this, but here's the question. What happens when some of our vulnerabilities start to show? Spoiler alert, Goliath loses. He dies. He is shown to be vulnerable. And maybe... We, deep down, wonder, are we vulnerable as well? Even in all our self-confidence, in all our self-reliance, and everyone telling us that we are worthy and we are enough, maybe we just, and so we should just accept ourselves and embrace ourselves, and if other people don't, well, that's their problem. Maybe somewhere deep down, that message, it just can't overcome our history of past failures, our present habits. And when that is the case, what happens when the weight of past mistakes and present habits undermines our self-confidence? What happens then? We end up in the same place that Israel ended up, terrified. You see, Saul and Israel and Goliath, they have a lot more in common than we often think. They are all trusting in the same thing, human power and potential. And Israel is terrified. But thankfully, not everyone in Israel was cut out of the same cloth. We're introduced to another character in verse 12. You see, about 12 miles to the east was a little town named Bethlehem. There was a man named Jesse who lived he had eight sons. The youngest of those sons was named David. His three older boys were off at war, and David was bringing supplies to and from to check on his older brothers. His dad told him this time to go and take some cheese to his brothers, and he did. And he showed up. But that day when he showed up, just like every other day, Every other day, Goliath came out, and he said, I defy the ranks of Israel. Give me a man. Except this day was different, because this day, verse 23, tells us, on this day, David heard him. 
And David wants to know, verse 23, or verse 26, David wants to know who was this uncircumcised Philistine who would defy the armies of the living God. You see, because in that day, if you defied someone else's army, you weren't just challenging their army, you were also challenging their God. That's why later on in the story, Goliath curses David by the Philistine gods. See, this wasn't just a human battle. This was a battle between the respective gods, the gods of the Philistine and the God of Israel. And David wants to know, who would do this? Who would do this? You see, to everyone else, Goliath was unbeatable. But to David, Goliath was uncircumcised. Without the presence and the power and the promises of God. What made David so different? Well, we pick up the story. This news that David challenged Goliath comes uh, to Saul's ears, and Saul calls David into his presence. And David and Saul have this conversation where Saul says, Come on, David, you can't do this. You're just a youth, and this guy has been trained as a warrior from his youth. But you see, David knew God. And that's the first difference. David had an experience of God and of God's saving power. He says, no, you listen, Saul. When I was a shepherd, I faced lions and I faced bears and God delivered me. He rescued me. He saved me out of the hands of lions and of bears, Saul. You see, David knew the living God. And he didn't just know the living God. He had a trust in God. He was confident in this God because this God had delivered him. You know, our trust in God is actually quite subtle. There's this whole scene then after this where Saul says, okay, David, that's great. But if you're going to go out there, at least put on my armor. Now, that whole funny scene of David putting on Saul's armor and looking like a kid dressing in a dad's clothes. That whole scene is to show us one thing. That Saul does what we do. Faith in God is great, but stay practical. I mean, that's great, David. I'm glad that you know God. I'm glad that you trust God. But let's keep this thing practical, all right? We got to hedge our bets. At least put on some armor. Because you see, it's all trusted in the same thing. That Israel, the Goliath, that we trust in. What we can see. But David trusted in God, and he not only trusted in God, you see, David not only had a deep trust in God, but David had a deep, deep love for God. When David goes out to battle, he says that he's going in verses 46 and 47, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves why is David fighting? What moved him? It was love. It was love, note, for the nations that all the world may know. You see, Goliath was telling lies about God. And David couldn't countenance those lies going forward anymore. That all the world may know. And it's not just the nations, but, but it's Israel. That Israel may know, that all this assembly may know, 
He says to Saul that no man may lose heart. And it's not just Israel. It was a love for the God whom Goliath was defiling and defying. Now, it's a good question. With so much to be afraid of, with no fears being unnoticed or unnoted, with newsreels that are pouring at us from every which away, it's a good question. What motivates us? Because you know, fear is a powerful motivator. And it is easy to be motivated by fear. It is easy to be motivated by fear. But David was motivated by love. Because as Marilyn Robinson says, fear is not a Christian habit of being. See, David knew the love of God. And it was love for God and love for others that moved David out into the world. What about you? What's motivating your career choice? Fear or love? What's motivating you in the way that you discipline your children, parents? Is it fear or is it love? What's motivating you in the way in which you engage in the public square, Christian? The way you vote? Is it fear or is it love? Fear is not a Christian habit of being. And perfect love, 1 John 4, 18 says, cast out fear because there is no fear in love. David was moved by love, love for the nations, even his enemies, love for Israel and love for his God. Do you know the God that David loved? Do you know the God who saves not with sword and spear? Verse 47. David proceeds to go out, to march out against Goliath. He enters the valley, and when he enters the valley, we find that he had very little. He had a shepherd's staff. He had a shepherd's pouch. And he had a shepherd's sling. These were not weapons of a warrior. They were tools of a shepherd. And that's what God used. Mind you that up until this point in the story, David has been dismissed and disdained for being a shepherd. Remember last chapter in chapter 16, David wasn't even considered amongst his brothers. Why? Because he was out doing shepherd's work. And when David shows up to the battle and when he starts challenging Goliath, in verse 26, his older brother Eliab says, David, stop being silly and go get back with the sheep. Go take care of the sheep. And even Goliath, when, when David marches out against him, Goliath is so offended. Like, is this the best that Israel can do? He says, what am I, a dog, a shepherd's dog, that you come out with me with a staff, a shepherd's staff? Everything about David being a shepherd said to everyone else that he was disqualified. 
And it's the thing that God used to give him the victory. I want you to think about that. So what everything else thought, what everyone else thought disqualified David was actually the very thing that God used to bring the victory. And do you know that that's how it is with God? That's how it always is with God. That his strength is made known in weakness. That his power in our failures. That this is actually how God accomplishes his purposes in the world. And so let me ask you, what is the thing in your life that you think most disqualifies you from his service? Because chances are that that thing that you feel so much shame about, that you hide, that failure, is the very thing that God wants to use to minister to others. I mean, if you talk to anyone long enough who has had a humble and successful ministry as a Christian, not to professional pastors, but ministry as a Christian, what you will find in their story is a place of deep hurt that they minister out of. A place of wounding. And it's there in that wounding that God uses because his strength is made known in weakness. Do you know the God who saves not with sword or with spear? And do you know the God who provides for people what they could not provide for themselves? You know, the things that David says in this story are audacious. He comes to Saul and he says, let no one fear. I will go and fight for us. Like, who is this kid? And then when he marches out and talks to Goliath, he says in verse 45 that he comes in the name of the Lord of hosts. Now, we have talked about how dangerous it is to take God's own name for our ends, haven't we? And that's why this whole idea of take coming in the name of the Lord, it's actually very rare in the scriptures. We see it here. We see it in Psalm 118, where the psalmist prays to God and says these words that are pretty famous. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's a prayer for God to send his anointed one, his Messiah, to deliver him. And these words are used again in the New Testament. When Jesus walks into Jerusalem and the crowd say, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus says them again when he weeps over Jerusalem in Matthew 23. And he says, you will not see me again until you say Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Ever wonder why when we're leading up to communion, we sing blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord? Because the one who comes in the name of the Lord is God's Messiah, his anointed one, the one he has sent to represent himself to deliver his people. You see, this story is not first and foremost about a model for us to emulate. It's not be like David. This story, first and foremost, is about a Messiah who has come to deliver us from our fears and our sin and our shame.
and all the things that threaten to undo us. I don't know if you've heard of Team Hoyt. Have you heard of Team Hoyt? Dick and Rick Hoyt. No lie, that's their name. Dick and Rick Hoyt. So Dick Hoyt was uh, a retired military officer, and his son Rick had his uh, um umbilical cord tied around his neck in the birthing process, and because of that, he had serious complications and had cerebral palsy. When Rick was a bit older, he heard about a lacrosse player at his school and there were, who was paralyzed, and there was a, a 5K that was a benefit that was put on for him. And so he said, Dad, I'd like, to, I'd like to run. I'd like to enter that 5K, but of course he couldn't run. And so Rick, oh, what his dad, Dick, did was his dad trained for it, and then his dad carried him the whole way. They came in second to last, not last. But afterwards, Dick said, you know, that's like the first time in my life where I didn't feel impaired and handicapped. And so Rick said, all right, let's do some more of these. So they built up and they trained more. And then the next thing you know, by March 2016, they had competed in 1,130 endurance competitions. Marathons, Ironman, triathlons. And every time Dick was putting Rick either in, uh, in, a, in some kind of cart that he was uh, running with, he would put him in a dinghy and tie it to him and swim when it was a triathlon over and over and over again. And you know what happened? They both were inducted into the Iron Man like Hall of Fame. The medal that is given to Hall of Famers was given to both of them. Because Dick decided that he was going to carry his son to victory. That's the picture of what God does for us here. He provides a savior a Messiah who fights for us and on our behalf. You are not David. You are scared Israelites on the hill, and so am I. But what happens? What happens when David goes out? God's chosen one. You see, Israel had chosen a king. And when Israel chose poorly, they chose Saul. God chose a better king for them. That's grace. That's what the gospel is all about. In spite of our horrible choices, God chooses what is best for us by giving us a savior. And his name is Jesus. And he fights the battle on our behalf. You know, when David hit Goliath, it says that the stone sunk into the flesh of his forehead. I just love that description. Then it says that he fell to the ground. David was without sword. He goes and he grabs a sword and he goes and he chops off his head. The bit that's usually not in the children's stories. You can thank me for that, kids. I know that you like that part. But you know the part I really like? I like how right what happens right after them. The Philistines realize their champion has been defeated. They turn, tuck tail, and run. 
And what happens to all those Israelites who are cowering? In verses 51 and 52, they become emboldened to fly after the Philistines, running in the wake of their champion. How much more? Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, how much more? If Israel would be emboldened to run in the wake of their champion, to fly after the Philistines, how much more should we be emboldened when our champion has not just defeated a physical enemy, but the enemies of sin and death? How much more should we be emboldened to run after him and follow him to impossible things wherever he calls us, knowing that the battle is the Lord's and he has already won the victory. Run after your Savior. Run after him. He is one. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.